Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. Just before I introduce this episode properly, I have some Amber and Paul news for you. First of all, Amber and Paul will be back on the podcast very soon. It's been a while since they made an appearance, but probably the next episode will be with them, which is nice. But also, Amber and I will be on Paul's YouTube live show on Monday the 6th of December at 8pm Paris time. I don't know when you're listening to this, Maybe it's already happened. I haven't given you very much notice, but that's okay because you can watch the replay. But anyway, let me just quickly tell you about this. So every Monday, Paul does a live show called Paul Taylor's Happy Hour Live. You can find that by searching for it on YouTube. In the show, he features guests and they respond to comments from the audience and generally talk and have fun. His next guests will be Amber and me, Finally, we're both going to be on the show together. And that's on, yes, Monday the 6th of December, and it will be at 8pm Paris time. If you're listening to this after that date, and you've already missed it, or if you can't watch it live, you will be able to see the replay on Paul's YouTube channel. Just search for Paul Taylor's Happy Hour Live. Okay, so if you're keen for more Amber, Paul and Luke action, check out Paul Taylor's Happy Hour Live on, that's right, Monday the 6th of December at 8pm, either live or on replay. Another thing, my merch stores, my merchandise stores are currently offering discounts. So if you would like to get an LEP t-shirt or mug or hoodie or something for yourself or as a Christmas present for another Lepster, now might be a good time because of discounts. Just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash merch to find out about the merch stores and to and to access them and all that stuff. Also, I hope you enjoyed the previous episode of this podcast, also with Penny Dale. Um, I just wanted to let premium Lepsters know that there is a premium episode in the pipeline, which will be called What Did Penny Say? And that's going to cover vocabulary from our conversation about the Bath Arts Workshop. Okay, so a premium episode uh, about vocab from the Bath Arts Workshop episode that is coming. Uh, for all the information that you need about Luke's English Podcast Premium, just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello. So let me tell you about this episode as briefly as possible. So in this one, I'm talking again to Penny Dale. This time we focus on her work as an author and illustrator of children's books. And she's had a very successful career doing that, which is quite rare. 
I think this conversation is absolutely lovely, and I hope you agree. It's just nice listening to Penny talking about her work, especially as the work itself is so thoughtful and done with a lot of care and attention, and it's all for children. Uh, I find the work lovely. Penny is lovely. It's all lovely, 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 lovely. So just to give you an overview, you're going to hear Penny talking about these things. So you'll hear her talking about the process of creating successful books for children, collaborating with editors and other writers, adapting an old nursery rhyme into one of her most popular books, inspiration versus craft. So just like where the ideas come from and how you actually turn those ideas into a into a thing so um you know some of it is inspiration just getting good ideas and how you kind of get to that point and then craft the actual the the hard work that's involved in um trying to make something and make it good and then make trying to improve it and crafting something so inspiration and craft she talks about managing to create a coherent story which would appeal to children and publishers within just 12 page spreads so a typical as you'll hear uh, penny say usually children's books are basically six double-sided spreads six double-sided spreads so you open the book out and that's a double-sided spread and in fact in total it's 12 pages so just 12 pages and how you can create a coherent story uh, in that limited format Um, she talks about applying her fine art training to her work the way language is used in children's books, incorporating rhythm, rhyme, repetition, storytelling, and perspectives. That's the point of view from which the story is told. And how she uses models in her illustration process, like real 3D models, miniature models, which she then sketches in order to create the hyper-real and very detailed style that she's known for. In fact... Several of the models that she's used in the past are toys that she borrowed from a certain bedroom in a certain house. This conversation includes references to some of her most popular titles, including Ten in the Bed, Dinosaur Dig, Dinosaur Farm, and Dinosaur Rocket. And if you want to find out about her books and, you know, if you'd like to get copies, just go to pennydale.com. Is that, is that the, yeah, pennydale.co.uk is her website which is probably a good place to go if you'd like to find out about her her books and where you can get them and stuff like that pennydale.co.uk the video version of this episode includes some pictures that's mostly penny showing pages from her books but she describes the images in some detail so even without the video version you should still get a good idea of what her work actually looks like but you can see the work in the video version the audio version of this which you're listening to now has more content in it Uh, so that's the advantage of the audio version Uh, there's more stuff including this introduction and there will be an ending ramble from me of some kind too so take your pick video version on youtube to see stuff as well as hear it an audio podcast version with more uh things to hear or both you could you know a lot of people do both they might listen to the audio version and then check out the video version as well to kind of re- really reinforce the things that they heard so you might consider doing that as well um okay then without any further ado let's find out about how penny has created successful books for children and here we go 
hello, video viewers. Hello, listeners. I'm talking in this episode with Penny Dale, who is an award-winning uh, author and illustrator of children's books. And uh, she's she's come up with lots of great titles that you might know. If you've got books for children in English, then you might have come across some of her work. Some of the more famous titles, Penny, Dinosaur Dig, yep. the Dinosaur Series. What are the what are your most famous books? Probably this one, Ten in the Bed, a version I did of Ten in the Bed um quite a long time ago. And currently the dinosaur series and there are seven of these in the series, which are um a combination of dinosaurs with heavy machinery, basically. Yeah. Of, of one kind and another yeah you do the illustrations but you mm-hmm. also write the the words as well uh, a lot of the time yes a lot of the yeah. time i have done some illustration for um martin waddell particularly i did three of his books and and fine a couple of um titles of hers just black and whites in a little more in uh older fiction um so how I many say, how many published yeah. books have you how many books have you had published now do you know <laughs> I I think it's about twenty five I think no it's probably more than that I'd have to actually I'd have to actually count I think it's a lot my though. own it is a lot I mean it's more than more than I can readily readily count yeah it's, it's there's some there's some little ones you know there's some small um, you know, black and whites I've done in things of, and, and also versions like 10 in the bed. I did a board book version of it. So that counts as another one. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole different, um, version with different illustrations, same text in a younger form. And you've got like 10 so, out of the bed and, uh, yes, some other, there's a some other, there's two, there's 10 out of bed and 10 play hide and seek as yes. well. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like Penny, a lot of people, so many people, uh, want to get into writing children's books, mm-hmm. but you're a person who's actually done it successfully for 30 years now or so. The, I think my first one was in 1986. So do the, do the maths. 86, 35. 96, 2006, um, 2006. It's, it's, it's over 30 years. Yeah. 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 It's a okay. long time. Like congratulations on actually making it as a as an author of children's books first of all because not many people can actually do it. It's a very competitive market. It's incredibly so competitive, and and actually, um, I think uh, I think one of the things I I learnt along the way um, is that um, persistence is the main thing. If you really want to do it, you have to you really have to be prepared to. Um, try and try and try again because you know um, again it's a very like we were talking about before it's a very collaborative process it's not just me and my work I wanted to publish it you know you show your ideas and you have to be able to work with an editor you have to be able to uh, rethink redo rework lots of times not always it's a bit like with pop songs Um, I'm going to use the Beatles again (laughs) <laughs> yeah, please do. As an example. But, um, you know, the way they'll say, um, I know that Paul McCartney used to say, like, yesterday just arrived as 
he he dreamt he dreamt it and he wrote it and other songs took tons and tons of crafting um i was watching a documentary just the other day about dylan thomas and his poet dylan thomas from wheels um who um i think when he was 18 or 19 wrote do not go gentle into that good night his famous poem and i think um they said he i mean he did 80 drafts or something. I mean, really a lot of versions before he, because he's, you know, he talked about it being a craft. And and I know with the children's book, I mean, 10 in the bed, you think um, that's an existing rhyme. Um, there were 10 in the bed and the little and one said, roll over, roll over. So they all rolled over and one of them fell one, out. One fell out. And then out. there's nine in yes. the bed and it, go, and it carries it on. carries it's- on until there's one in the bed and and it ends and i mean i thought of wanting to do um a book about that as a side thing while i was struggling to make another type another story work um so um i mean i was trying to get a book i mean i can show you or tell you Mm -hmm. about it later it was a book written by martin waddell and other illustrators had given up on it the my publisher said when i first went there um you can try this but it no one no one's actually managed to do this yet it's a really difficult story and it was um proving really hard so i went in one day and said i've i've always wondered about that rhyme 10 in the bed you know who was the little one what on earth was it about why were they why were people falling out of bed you know what was it um and i had this um, idea that it could be a kid, just a, a child, just throwing toys out one by one until they were on their own. Um, and so, then, and then they all jump back into the bed. Yes, and, and, and all, in this, and this idea, and like said, all children's books, that everyone falls asleep at the end. Everyone falls asleep, and we even got the rhyme to work out that way as well. But I basically thought it would be a straightforward thing to do. So I said, can I put this other book that's difficult on hold and just have a go at making this work? And luckily, the editor I worked with for years said, yeah, go on then. You know, we can do that. We can work with that. And I thought it would be quick, but it was still really difficult to work out how to get um, all these characters out of bed, doing something, which they all do, and then all back in again, Um and it was like planning a feature film in the end because every single shot of everything shifted. As soon as one fell out of bed, everything else moved in the in the set. It was like having a, a Hitchcock, you know, um, what's that one where it's just all done in one set? So it's like one set and everything happens in that one place. Yeah. So everything moves. As soon as you move something, you've got this continuity of where is everything else and I also wanted to do viewpoints. So I had like when the mouse, there's, there's basically there's these animals in the bed. So there's, so um, I'm just showing a picture now to show there's a, a little boy or girl. I made it so you can't tell mm-hmm. um, in the middle of a very, very big bed with a quilt on it. And in the bed beside him, almost as big as him is a sheep and a rabbit, a crocodile, a teddy bear, two teddy bears, a zebra, a mouse, um, what else? An elephant. 
Yes, hedgehog. Anyway, so there's these other creatures, and I wanted to do it so that the mouse's point of view, when the mouse fell out, you were looking up, and when the elephant fell out, you were looking down. So I made myself a really difficult uh, mission to try and do it like that. And I also wanted to draw it so it looked like had the flavour of those really early cartoons with the very, very early cartoons from the ni- 1930s. Yes. So yes, it yes. had a very dark and very dark colours and everything. So it wasn't an easy, quick thing to do. It took me, most books have taken me about a year to do on average. Really? Wow. That's a long time. So much work, but it's, it's a, it's a mysterious art, isn't it? The, making successful books for kids um you know what's this recipe what's the recipe for a good kids book i think it's i think a lot of people think it's easy because it's often just 400 words but um i mean the way i started was i mean i did fine art at art college which is like and i did sculpture and painting and all kinds of things to just use the art college years as you know, and film, all kinds of things. So I did an open degree to get as much experience as possible. Um, and then I did just painting and stuff like that for um, just fine art painting for a few years when our daughter was young. And then when she was about five, I thought, ooh, and I love the work of Raymond Briggs. I don't know if you know him. He did a book called Father Christmas and the Snowman. Oh, I do. We've got both of those <laughs> books downstairs. Father Christmas, the snowman, and also Fungus, the bogeyman as well. Yeah. As another Raymond <laughs> Briggs. Yes, yeah, my brother and so I much. grew up with those books too. Yeah. Excellent. Um, lovely, mm. lovely, lovely books. Yeah. I, I guess he's probably my my main inspiration, the, the person I admire most, but also the Allbergs, Janet and Alan Allbergs, Peepo and Helen Oxenbury, that kind of loose drawing with a pencil line. Helen so, which, which, what she, she does, do? um, uh, I'm trying to think I've got an example of her work. I don't think I have. So she, she, she did, um, babies that were very like a, just a 2B pencil line, very, very sort of a shaggy pencil line and little dot eyes and very characterful and very expressive. And they were very simple back in the early eighties. I'll tell you which one it is. Sorry to interrupt you. The one that the famous one is We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Yes, with Michael Rosen. With Michael, Michael Rosen. Michael Rosen wrote it, wrote it. Yeah, that's her. It's almost yeah. like a charcoal line. So it's it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a real drawing-y kind of thing. Okay. Um, so those were the sort of inspiration. And I thought I, I really loved um, film as well, cartoons and stuff like that. So I thought... I did this whole development of a book anyway. I did this thing that was tons of pages, kind of in the style of Raymond Briggs, the snowman a bit. And it was about sort of Michelin man, like cloud people that controlled the weather. Mm. So it was quite an elaborate story of, and you know, <laughs> anyway, I did this whole thing. I did this whole thing and I was very lucky to get an introduction to Walker books who I hadn't actually heard of at the time, but they were, groundbreaking children's publishers in the 80s Sebastian Walker did a whole new model of publishing he he broke the mold and um 
I, I could talk about him a bit more in a in another moment. But mm-hmm. anyway, so I, I went to meet an editor at Walker Books who looked at this thing that had taken me about a year to do and went, hmm, I like your drawing of children. It's an interesting idea. Uh, maybe I should show you some children's books. So he went and... In fact, he went to a, they had a a room full of uh, books that they'd published and he was showing me different ones and saying, you know, unpatronizingly saying, the thing is, it's very good to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And usually, (laughs) not always, but usually a children's picture book for under fives has 12 spreads. So 12 open pages when you open them and then a little bit of you can have decorated end sheets. You can have a hardback or a paperback. Then normally 12. I'd done about 27 or something spreads of pictures with these children going up on clouds and coming down and making rain. Too long. Yes. You know, um, brevity is not my uh, strong point, as you might have noticed. Mine either. Um, as so, listeners to this podcast will will garrulity yes will agree um, anyway <laughs> i'm trying to cut a long story short um which is an expression i'm quite appetite nice yeah to cut a long story short yeah yes, um, that is exactly. yeah exactly very good yes, we, we were talking about uh the the recipe for a good kids book yes so about 12 sp- 12 spreads yes and um he said i mean what i didn't realize was that i was i was doing okay he did like the my drawings of children he liked the you know the kind of general idea i had but he said um how would you feel about illustrating something to begin with and i thought yeah (laughs) do anything really What, what have you got so Basically, that's what I did. He gave me this really difficult story I've told you about, which is written by someone else, written by Martin Waddell, and mm-hmm. is the first edition of it. It's called Once There Were Giants. Oh, I know um, it. We, um, yeah, I've I've read it with my daughter. Yes, that one. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I think yeah. I think I think your mum had my mum and dad have got a copy of it. Yeah, but base basically, it's um, the story of a little girl growing up in twelve spreads. So the child grows up. It's written from um, first person. So the book starts, once there were giants in our house, there were mum and dad and Jill and John and Uncle Tom. The small one on the rug is me. So it's each page says, here we are. And the punchline is, the you know, the one throwing porridge is me. On right. The second page. The so one in the of- duck pond. Lots of repetition in, in children's books yes. where it's like the same kind of like um, there's always like the same structure and then a very similar line at the end. So, you know, as you said, that once there were giants, there were these people here and there, and then the one on the rug was me. And then yes. the next page is blah, 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 blah. And then the one da, 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 da was me. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So there's like a punchline. And this particular author, Martin Waddell, is really good at um, – that kind of writing. He, his most famous book is probably Can't You Sleep, Little Bear? But that's sold loads and loads and loads of copies as well. Um, yeah. So so this was difficult because it's first person. So when you're reading it to a child, you're saying me. So the child is going to think you're talking about yourself. And also it says stuff happened 
And then this other thing happened. So you have to try and illustrate, you know, when I went to school, I'd got bigger. Mum had to leave at a quarter to ten. She didn't come back for a long, long time. I didn't shout and I didn't scream. She came to me at quarter to three. The one on mum's knee is me. So you can see there's a little girl looking a bit lonely at the window, first day at school, and then a crowd scene of them coming out and she's sitting on her mum's lap in the hallway of the school. So basically I cracked it in the end, but I couldn't see how to illustrate those two things and other people couldn't as well for a while. So he showed me that. He showed me another simple story that was, Mm -hmm. you know, something I could illustrate. In fact, that he'd written himself, (laughs) the editor. (laughs) We're sitting in this lovely open plan office. He goes, "Here's here's a more, this one might be good. And it's called the stopwatch. And it's just about a stopwatch, which is probably not something you get nowadays because you do it on your phone. But it's like a a pocket watch and with a, you know, like you'd have a a sports thing. Yeah, like sort of referees, I guess, would have sometimes have them uh, around their neck uh, on a a little string or rope and click to start the stopwatch if you're timing people doing a race or something. Yeah, that's right. So it's just a story of a little boy being given a stopwatch by his grandmother, and then he times loads of stuff, really, kind of kind of funny stuff. He works out yeah. how long it is um, to do all kinds of stuff. So that was my first book. I illustrated it. And when I said to him, who wrote this then, you know, looking around, I could see around this office various names of authors on plan chests and illustrators I knew, and he put his finger all around the room like this. And then ended up with him like that, pointing at himself because I said a few things about the story, you know, and then he confessed it. Was oh, really? You, you, had you criticised <laughs> the story a little bit? I said, oh, that's difficult to. That's also quite difficult. But anyway, so that was my first meeting, and I went away with these two stories, and I the stopwatch was the first one, and then I did a couple more of my own, and then ten in the bed. Then once there were giants, then came back to it. So I was up and away and really just working with this one publisher um, and the same editor and designer. But, I mean, you know, each thing I did, as I said, took about a year. Probably every book took about a year. And other people are faster than I am. The the time often is taken up not just in the illustration, although that does take a lot of time. Your style Mm. is... A lot of detail, a lot of what do yeah. you use? Pencil, is is it or, or it's um it's well it it's a mixture of watercolour, kind of like an undercoat. So I I yeah. do uh, I trace the drawing down once I've got things as I want them on a big sheet of paper. Um I trace it down and then use ink, very pale ink, to go around the outline. Then you can rub all the pencil away. So you've just yeah. got a clean line on watercolour paper. And then I put the watercolour on, just blocking it in. Yeah. Then I the use pencils to um, coloured pencils to get the detail and stuff. And then I might go around with more ink or more outline to make some things pop out and jump out. Yeah. 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 But it's kind but of I'm, like pencil on top of watercolour mm. and then with some ink as well in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, but it's but it's a lot of detail. I mean, if you look yes. at uh, an open spread of one of your books, it's incredible mm. how vibrant it is, and a lot of that is about detail. I mean, it's it's mm. it's 
it's really alive and you can look in every corner of the page in many cases which is great for kids because they're so observant i mean one of the ones that i i uh, read with my daughter a lot we don't read it anymore because she's kind of grown out of it now really i Mm. think is uh dinosaur farm and dinosaur farm is basically these dinosaurs the dinosaur series is kind of hilarious uh because it's just these multicolored brightly colored dinosaurs driving big heavy machines like uh like diggers and tractors and things in different mm. situations and so you get these i'm talking to the listener i mean you obviously yeah, you know yeah, no, no. yeah i know yeah <laughs> but i'm uh, you know just to describe some of the things so you get these mm. v- amazing pictures of let's say a velociraptor driving uh, a four-wheel drive all-terrain vehicle across a field in order to feed some 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 sheep or something uh but there's like you see the mud flying off the wheels um you see the sheep in lots of detail in all these different positions and every single page has got two pigs on it and there's two little pigs somewhere they're hiding in the grass or they're munching on some apples or they're doing this that and the other and so reading the Whenever we used to read those books or that, that particular book with my daughter, it was always we'd do the page, describe the stuff, and then, you know, where are the pigs? And she would look for the pigs and she'd be delighted when she found them. But there's just like a lot of stuff to look at. Also, where are the mm. chickens and can you see the cows and yeah, so yeah. much detail? It's it's so vibrant. Um yeah, well, so I can imagine it takes a long time to illustrate. But also there's just the publishing side. So the, your work mm-hmm. goes to the editors and the editors come back with their feedback and then you have to make changes. And it's sort of like the production side of it, probably like a film or something, the way it can go on and on. That's um, right, yes. You get phases and and it is like a film in a way because and, and I know a lot of artists do this who are authors illustrators and authors is that they'll do a storyboard a bit like you have with a film so um i've i've got one for uh, i've got one for 10 in the bed here which you can see it's kind oh, of oh wow so there's the lots storyboard. it's a big it's a big sheet of card or paper and on it are uh, 12 windows and it shows what you're planning and there's lots of notes on it and stuff so it helps to actually block in what's going to happen and you can actually see the whole shape of the story um by looking at this and in fact on 10 in the bed there's a note there you can see towards the end there's a note where we realized and it was going to cost money um to put in two more spreads because we couldn't get the 10 creatures out of bed and back in in 12. It just wasn't wasn't possible to wrap it up. So it became a different kind of um, uh, print. They just had to – it's called separate ends, and you get two more spreads out of it. So it's got 14, that particular one. But it was so brilliant to be able to get that extra space and just be able to get them in. But it's it's the juggling of the words and the pictures together because – you don't want them to, they're not doing the same job. The words are a kind of guide underneath, like a skeleton. And the picture is doing all the stuff that in a book of, um, you know, a, an adult book, all the descriptions in the words. But, the, you know, that's why I like to put a lot of detail in because it gives a whole, gives the atmosphere of the place and the setting. And I think children can see detail, you know. Um, yeah. My, m- one of my nieces 
preferred the miniature version of Ten in the Bed, the miniature original version. So it was absolutely tiny with all the detail in of the original, not the board book, which was drawn in a more open cartoon style. So the board book, I did a whole new set of artwork for younger children ostensibly without so much background, just on white, like cartoon characters cut out. And um, she preferred this version, which was a special one. So it was tiny with all the detail in. And that's what her little eyes could see everything perfectly. And I suspect children can see, don't always want big, plain, open images. I sometimes think they, they really like detail and layers and... Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to, to to try and understand how kids see the world. They don't see it like us. They mm. pick up on atmosphere and small details mm. in ways that we can't really understand. Like as we get older yes. and older, I don't know. We filter so many things out, or we are understanding and looking at the world in a totally different way. And kids, yeah. it's all about just they they just sort of pick up the general atmosphere of a thing, and probably yes, probably. Uh, focus their attention a lot more on specific details yes. and everything else get black block, blocked out it's like if you take a child a small child a two-year-old mm. or something to the grand canyon or something some incredible mm. place and you say look at the view look yeah. at that it looks amazing <laughs> and it's just sort of meaningless to them they're just what? really concerned with what's going on just <laughs> yes, within a few that? meters of, yes. them, of them i can see you know they'd be more interested in a leaf that they've picked up off the floor yes and seeing one of nature's in- most incredible spectacles you know and it's, right. it's just yeah. weird the way that they have a totally different way of, of seeing things so yeah mm. uh books that have a a certain atmosphere and lots of little details yeah seem to be popular with kids it's not the yeah. it's not the only thing i mean i i have a new great nephew um and he his favorite two books one of them is called goat i think and it, it it's just a just a goat on a sort of bright green background and don't quite know what it does and it drives his parents mad because there's not much to it but he absolutely loves it and then he also likes incredibly complicated pictures as well so you can't say you know it's it's his perception there's He's just got very varied tastes, you know, with huge yeah. range. Um, That's a good point because having said what I just said, yeah, there are lots of kids' books which are very plain and very simple. Mm. As you said, just like one single bold image on a simple yes. coloured background and it uh, just very bold lines. Yes. And they seem to go for that kind of thing too. They do. Yeah. And books like, I, have you seen I Want My Hat Back? You know, very dark. I haven't seen, I, haven't seen mm. I Want My Hat Back, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you recommend it's it? It's very dark. It's very dark and very popular and won loads of awards. I think I've, I've got I've got a copy here, but I'll have to show you sometime. But, um, yeah, so I make work for myself is what people always say about my, my stuff, actually. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've got a couple of show and tell things for, for to show you here. This mm-hmm. this is um, from dinosaur. These dinosaur books. I mean, basically, there's a there's a certain pattern to them. There's a there's a there's a word pattern, which um, when I started writing them, um, I wanted to make them really easy to read for young kids that are just learning to read, but not embarrassing for children that are sort of 
four or five or six to be seen with because they look like baby books. So mm -hmm. I wanted them to look techy and complicated, but the but the words and the um, syntax to be simple, but still telling a lot of stuff about. So I'm thinking of boys. You know, don't want to be at all sexist about it. A lot of girls like these books too. Yeah, my daughter. I like heavy them. machinery myself. You know, yeah. I will stand on the platform, or I used to um, when I was going to London on the train, to wait for the train to go out because I like the really loud engine going by me. I like, yeah. I like to. Sad, I know. Yeah. Well, it's not sad. I like it. I like yeah. big engines and big machinery. So, this is. Um, I'll have to read it so people that are just listening hear. But this is a uh, the fifth dinosaur book. So basically, they're all about this team collaboration again, working together. There's ten dinosaurs, and usually each one has a particular job or might be with a with a pal doing something. So this particular one is is Dinosaur Rocket, and it is basically the story of the Apollo mission to the moon, basically in twelve spreads. So, but with dinosaurs. But with dinosaurs instead of astronauts. So, you know, the opening spread shows what the equivalent of the base where the uh, rocket is being set up. Mm -hmm. And there's the technical dinosaurs in the foreground with their iPads and all their thing doing the flight, you know, doing the final checks. Yeah. And I think this is all very implausible because there's actually a big box of food being put on the rocket like you have on a flight on an aeroplane. You know, they put those big metal canisters yeah. on with all the dinners in when you go the on cabin a cabin crew plane. then push them through the, uh, through the plane and distribute the food. So they're, they're putting one of those kind of air aircraft food container things onto yes. it. So yeah. they're in a pickup truck going towards the, the rocket and the words um, basically, I've written them so that they oh, everything overlaps. So there's complete repeats in the sentences. Yes. The sentences yes. overlap. So if you've read a word and you've got it, you can you get the reward of reading it again. So it says, "Dinosaur rocket waiting, waiting on the launch pad, on the launch pad, having final checks." So if you're a kid reading that. You think, hooray, I know that word waiting. I've just seen it. Oh, there it is again. And, you know, so that's the idea that they get the reward. Again, and on repetition. every page, yeah. there's a repetition of a sound. And this one on this page, because it's the final checks before the launch, the dinosaurs in the foreground are saying, check, check, check. And they're, they're waving their claws at each other. They've got headsets on and they've got, like I said, iPads and bags of tools. So they're yes. ready to launch it off. So I won't go through the whole thing, but basically the next picture shows the outside broadcast wagon with a dinosaur in the film truck. Um, yeah. And you can see on his little screens, he's seeing the same rocket, which is a you can see the base of same as a Saturn V, really. And there's a dinosaur yeah. filming him. And then on the bus are the astronaut dinosaurs looking very nervous, driving up to the rocket, sort of gulping. <laughs> And, an and the bus story. is wonderful. The bus is like it's like a bus from the like the early nineties or the late eighties or something like that. Yes, it's got a, a retro feel to it, and the, the 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 lights of the bus are gleaming, and the hubcaps of the of the um, you know the wheels are shining. It's all yes, it's larger all than life and so vibrant. It's all, it's all quite um, and quite super real as well. You can see the tower there. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you yeah. how I managed to draw the tower in a minute. But it's basically, not surreal. It's it's more than real. It's kind of see. There's kind of there's a little fire engine there, a little tiny fire engine to, for I scale. See. see coming out. Right. From, so you get and the rockets sort of smoking like they do or steaming just before they take off. Yeah. So it's trying to get in the pictures all that atmosphere. Um, so basically, then they load into the rocket, and it says, um, "Brave dinosaurs climbing, climbing into the rocket, into the rocket, right at the top." And you see the dinosaurs at the top of the launch pad, and the capsule, and you see them. It's all incredibly unfeasible in a way, though, because there's a press gallery above them. The dinosaurs are on a gantry going into the capsule of the rocket, and above them are the press, who would of course fry if they were there. Yeah, they would, reality, be they would go to down death quickly. When the rocket takes yes. off. But I mean, you know, you're talking about it being unrealistic, but let's not forget also that there are, these are dinosaurs that have become astronauts. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, realism exactly. is kind of thrown realism out of the window is, a little bit. <laughs> so I'm just trying to get in all these sort of retro uh, references and also trying to bear in mind that the illustrations have to, if you're showing equipment, you've got to hedge your bets because some of these books um, sell in America as well. So there's American vehicles, there's retro vehicles, new ones all mixed up. So it doesn't kind of put itself in a particular time. Obviously, this yeah. is an homage to the late 60s. But, I mean, as you said, that vehicle's more modern. Um, it's, it looked kind of 80s to me. It looked like the sort of bus that I used to take to school when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah but, I think um, it probably was. Yeah. Kind of American. Anyway, so the story just goes goes through. So we won't, we won't show it all. But the, the dinosaurs are there. There's a close-up inside the capsule of them looking very nervous and the countdown happening. And they've got proper astronaut suits on made for dino- to fit dinosaurs. So getting a T-Rex into a spacesuit is quite hard. I love, the, uh, I love a- the fact that the T-Rex is like the perfect um, uh, pilot because he's got those little arms, <laughs> yes. which are perfect for pulling levers and pressing buttons. Yes, so- he's, he's got his little uh, little claws ready to pull the switches there. <laughs> and, then, and then anyway, and then they take off and they go to the moon and lo and behold, there's a liftoff. There's a liftoff. Door. That just says lift off that page. It's all very um, atmospheric. And then on the moon, they they get there, and like the real astronauts, um, they they've got moon buggies. They drive around and they play football. Stuff happens. Um, and then towards the end, they have a moment of homesickness because they see the planet. They see their dinosaur planet far away. So after all the action on the moon and doing their experiments and stuff like that, they stop and look at their planet, their blue planet, so far, far away. And it says home. And they're all going home, home, home. home." home. Quiet dinosaurs stopping, stopping to look at their planet, their blue planet, so far, far away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like that Earthrise, that famous Earthrise picture that they took from the moon. And then they blast off for home. Bye, 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 they say, Luke. <laughs> yeah, very and good. Then, and then, then there's a splashdown picture with an aircraft carrier and them coming to be rescued. Wonderful. So, you know, the whole thing. Now, one of the reasons I'm showing you this book, Luke, is because I have a confession to make. 
view, mm. which is that okay. um, in order to make that view of the launch pad, I made a little model, which I often do, and I made a, a model of the ground. Oh, my goodness. You actually made a model out of Lego. I did. The, I made a model site. out of Lego. It, it, it's kind of like just a very rudimentary plan, but it's a way of drawing that incredibly difficult aerial landscape in perspective. Yeah. And I, I made a tower um, that goes somewhere, the actual launch tower, so I could draw it in perspective. You can I see. I see. Yeah. But the confession part is that the Lego that I used um, – mm-hmm. And here's the space buggy. Guess who's a Lego that used to be? That looks familiar. Yeah. Is that my Lego? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Apparently it is. Um, Your your mum and dad loaned me your yours and your brother's Lego (laughs) when I was doing, I think, the book a book before. Because I said it's really useful. I had a bit from my daughter. but she had some Lego Technic that we haven't got anymore. But this is this is great because I'm just showing um, Luke this moon buggy made of Lego. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, wow. So that, I didn't I didn't know that. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, you know the drawings in Dinosaur Rocket mm. um, actually contain uh, illustrations of my Lego. Wow. Correct. Yes. Amazing. And if you if you need it back for your daughter, which is your dad pointed <laughs> out, it was just a Lego. It'll be a while. It's, it's, she's not quite ready for te- Lego Technic yet, but yes. uh, maybe yes. in a few years, maybe in a few years. But she'd be she'd be delighted to actually have the original Lego from from the book. <laughs> she be good. Yes, you can. Yeah. Didn't you once also in a Dinosaur Rescue? which is about dinosaurs rescuing a car that's stuck on the train tracks. Yeah. Or it's actually a truck that's stuck on the train tracks. I yeah. think you used one of my dad's old uh, toys that he had yes. from childhood, and we had some of his old toy cars and stuff in the cupboard. And you said, I am looking for a truck. I need a <laughs> truck to draw from Dinosaur truck. Rescue. And yeah. my dad sort of picked out this nice flatbed truck, which yes. you then used in the illustration. It did, yes, yeah. I mean, for for those that can see, I, in fact, it's dedicated to Rick and Jill, your mum and dad. This one, very nice. The and that's the truck. It was a khaki colour in re- real life, but it's got those great big. What do you call um, hub the things over the wheels? Things that wheel arches, wheel yeah. arches. I suppose the things that go over the that cover the, the that go over the wheels. It's got these very that, prominent. Um, like a gangster car would have, you know, in the 1930s, these great heavy um, wheel arch things. Yes. And it's a very yeah. classic looking truck. And it was kind of beat up. It was perfect because, yeah, Dinosaur Rescue is is a disaster movie, really, almost, isn't yeah. it? The disaster doesn't yeah. quite happen. But the truck is stuck on the track. So uh, the dinosaurs, the builder dinosaurs, and they've got their truck stuck on a track, which is – a cross between an American and a British level crossing. So I there's see. obviously been an incident. It's had a blowout in the front wheel. I think that's what happened. Yes. And the so, train is fast approaching. And so and the, the dinosaurs, dinosaurs need to come to, 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 yes. to the rescue. Yes. So the train's chugging along the track and you see all the passengers in the back, all sort of oblivious on their phones and eating picnics and things. And there's a great big steam train <laughs> chuffing along chuff chuff yeah. chuff and and the t-rex is driving of course 
and looking out of the window, you know, of his steam train, oblivious. Meanwhile, further up the track, there's there's been this um, unfortunate accident, accident, yes, of the dinosaur (laughs) truck stuck across the track, truck and track. (laughs) Yeah. And they ring Dinosaur Rescue, who, of course, are coming. Oh, and in fact, your dad helped me with this because he he is quite interested being an editor sort of person. He often gives me advice in the early stages of these books. And he Mm -hmm. said, make them coming towards you. So this is a police car, dinosaur police car on one side of the street, racing along parallel to the train, which is coming towards you. And Mm -hmm. the, the dinosaur in the police car has a megaphone. He's shouting at the driver of the train there's there's a hazard up ahead you've got to slow down right and the t-rex is going i can't hear i can't, I can't hear sorry you. this train's like <laughs> i can't hear you you what <laughs> yeah <laughs> you what mate yeah you what mate yeah. so um yeah loads of fun but okay there we are. <laughs> have you got any you've got any uh, anything in the pipeline then at the moment uh n- no actually ah, I is have that nice some, I, and it well, you get this sort of, I get this kind of gest- gestation period where my brain's working on stuff. And to be quite honest, I'm doing the bath book and thinking about the planet a lot and um, just the general situation. You know, I'm not sure it's something the dinosaurs can do anything about, but I'm wondering, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, of- they have experience of... Um, having trouble with a planet you know the dinosaurs yeah they have had experience of climate uh, climate uh, crises climate disasters so maybe they can uh, maybe they've got some experience that they can help help out with yes Um, i mean it might be a parallel universe these dinosaurs are in it looks like they're they're in a different iteration here where i would say so i don't think this is historically accurate stuff i I would say No, I did have some feedback from China, actually. A mother wrote that her son in China had said, my ankylosaurus wasn't quite as it should be. It didn't have the right number of claws. And, and, you know. (laughs) And you're thinking, these aren't scientific manuals. (laughs) What I said was, you know, really good observation. But in fact, this is a parallel universe. It's a different, the dinosaurs are not exactly like our our ones, yeah. I love that comment as well. It's like, yeah, what what was the name of the dinosaur? The Achaeosaurus or something? Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus. So mm. the, the the complaint was, yeah, the great book, but the Ankylosaurus didn't have enough claws. And you're like, yeah. okay, but the fact it was driving a car is fine. <laughs> it's it's fine. Just, uh, yes. It doesn't yes. have the right number of claws. The okay. Gone to the moon. Because on in each of the books, there is a kind of, what would you call that? A glossary, an, in, an index of the dinosaurs. So they are on the end sheets at the front of the book, each of the dinosaurs, so you know yeah. what they are, ostensibly. Yeah. And always at the back is the, the vehicles that are featured. So, yes. so for the children, and there are quite a lot of them who are fairly sort of keen observers about the, the text. They want to know what is that. You know, mm. and it has to be in a in a language that works. You know, and the Americans will slightly change it for theirs if it's a different name for the for the yeah. truck, yeah. whatever yeah. it is. Okay. So yeah, it's a constantly evolving business. But I don't know. I sort of feel the dinosaurs might need to have to say something about the state of things. But yeah, I think it's a good idea. Mm. I think so. 
Okay, well, we can look forward to perhaps that one <laughs> coming up, yeah. arriving at some planning. point. Uh, but Penny, this has anyway. been really interesting. Thank you so much for talking to me and my audience about the children's books and also the, the, the Bath Arts workshop that we'd spoke about before. Um, very interesting stuff. People can find out about you and your work on your website, correct? Yes, that's right. I have a website, just as you would think, pennydale.co.uk. And um, the workshop also, Bath Arts Workshop, have a website with links to various bits and pieces and things which will give you probably a better flavour of the overview than I may have been able to give. I mean, one thing I wanted to say is that the children's books all seem to feature large casts of characters and collaborating kind of haphazardly. So I think there's a link there with the workshop, actually. You know, yeah. something yeah. something has leached through into the children's books. Because so many of them have got experience. these... It must have been yeah, a very formative so. experience that's inspired you. And it's, it shows up in other ways. That's right. really interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, um, uh, I'll let you go. Uh, have a lovely rest of the day. You too. And um, you see you soon, I, I hope. Um, I haven't seen, actually yeah. seen you and Brian for ages, but uh, it'd be nice to actually see you yeah, in person. Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? You're coming over for half term, I think, aren't you? You yes. visiting soon? Yeah. Visiting soon. Um, I'm actually going to London tomorrow and then I'll be. Oh, well. Going up to my parents uh, on Friday for a few days. Um, so Very good. Be... Oh well, we might see you on the on the, down the um, yeah on the old Zoom or or, or even on just uh, in person. If you guys come over and we're there or something, that would be nice. Yeah, that'd be good. Okay then. Well. Okay. Thanks to you, and it's been fun. It has. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> So that was the second part of my conversation with Penny Dale and I hope you found that interesting and lovely as well. I mean, that was my feeling. It was just really nice listening to her talking about the process of coming up with these books and the the, the drawings and illustrations, as as you heard me say, full of detail and care. Um, lovely stuff. And if, as I said before, if you want to find out about her books and where you could get them if you want to you could go to pennydale.co.uk or just search your you know your bookshop whichever one you choose to use for children's books by penny dale for example 10 in the bed dinosaur farm dinosaur dig and the others in the dinosaur series plus lots of other books that she's done and i do really recommend them they they are just uh, a pleasure to um, share with your children so there we go and uh this is almost it i mean that's it for the sort of penny dale part and uh you know thanks again to penny for taking part in this episode and for her contribution to the episode um it's been really enjoyable and um so that's that's kind of it for that but this is not the end of the audio episode as i have said before as i am now telling my audience in these audio episodes uh there's some more content now because uh, you've got the video version which is just the interview and now if you're listening to the audio version you get a bit more chat from me a bit more sort of rambling here and there so I'm just going to kind of have a bit of a ramble now 
um, about various things, about some upcoming content and a few other things. So in terms of upcoming episodes, I think that the next one will almost definitely be an Amber and Paul episode. Yay! As, you know, legions of Lepsters break into spontaneous applause. I'm assuming that you're happy about that. I do get enough messages from people saying, oh, we need another Amber and Paul episode. And uh, so, well, one is coming soon, okay? Uh, And it's going to be Amber and Paul and me on location in a famous Paris museum. I don't know why I'm talking about it in these mysterious terms. Oh, in a famous Paris museum, talking about some amazing works of art from various periods, including a certain famous portrait by Leonardo da Vinci, not Leonardo DiCaprio. He's not an artist. No, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, why did you say that, Luke? You're just trying to trying to shoehorn a joke in, are you? Yeah, why not? Uh, I don't know. Whenever I say, whenever I start to say Leonardo da Vinci, there's just part of my brain that goes, "Go on, say Leonardo DiCaprio instead." Why not? So anyway, uh, I don't know why I'm talking about it in these mysterious terms. I'll just be straight with you. So it's a, it's uh, an episode f- uh, recorded, audio episode recorded on location at the Louvre Museum, one of the most famous museums in the world, where they have all these incredible works of art and all sorts of artifacts. It's a huge museum, but uh, the three of us decided to try and blast through some of the highlights in about an hour. It turned out to be about an hour and 20 minutes which is good because you get even more stuff. And we walk around the museum talking about describing the works of art that we can see. And there are various periods that we sort of um, visit and talk about. So there's some like statues from ancient Greece, you know, marble statues, some, some, some very famous ones. Uh, there's some medieval art, French medieval art paintings and, and so on. Um, the Renaissance era stuff, um, includes those paintings by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and yes, the Mona Lisa is one of those uh, paintings. Obviously, everyone knows the Mona Lisa, one of the mo- maybe the most famous painting in the world. So you'll hear us there standing standing next to it, talking about it, talking about why it's so famous and all that sort of thing. And many, many other works of art. Um, it's uh, it's. A great episode, I think, and I say that because it's 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 a lot of it's Amber because Amber is a registered tour guide in Paris. She knows loads of stuff about the history of Paris and all the things you can find there. In fact, you must listen to her podcast, which she is still doing. So if you if you miss the voice of Amber Minogue, the wonderful wonderful voice of Amber Minogue, then you know listen to her podcast. She's still doing it. She doesn't do it as regularly as I do this one, but um, she is still uploading episodes. Panam Podcast, it's called P A N A M E Panam, which is a, a it's like a, a sort of nickname for Paris. Panam Podcast, and you can find the details at panampodcast.com. So listen to Amber's podcast. But um, anyway, the the one at the Louvre is, uh, a lot of it is Amber because she knows so much about the things that we see. And as a tour guide, she has experience of, you know, showing tourists around the the museum. And, you know, she's got lots of things to say. So there's, there's a lot to be gained, I think, from that, not just in terms of your listening practice in English, but also just general knowledge. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy that. Uh, that is coming soon. I expect it's going to be the next episode. And don't forget, like I said, um, 
I think at the beginning of this episode, right, I did, I said that uh, Amber and I are going to be on Paul Taylor's Happy Hour Live, his weekly uh, YouTube live stream. Uh, we're going to be on uh, on the 6th of December um, at uh, 8 p.m., okay? Now, there's a good chance that you're listening to this after that date, and so you, you're now shaking your fist in the air like, why, Luke, why didn't you tell us before? Uh, well, you know, it wasn't. Uh, I, don't, I should have told you before, maybe. Um, but you know, I'd have to be organised and stuff for that, wouldn't I? Um, I mean, it, you know, we didn't agree to it that long ago, and episode uploads have been a bit haphazard. And you know, you understand. It's like you're, you're, you're saying now, it's all right, Luke. We know you've got a lot on your plate. You told us it's okay. Um, but don't worry if you can't see the live stream. If it's like you know if that's now in the past or if 8 p.m on the 6th of december is not convenient for you that's 8 p.m paris time of course that's central european time if that's not convenient for you of course you can still see the replay um, and you'll find it on paul taylor's um, youtube channel but you have he's got two youtube channels he's got paul taylor and he's got paul taylor's happy hour live so obviously it's going to be on paul taylor's happy hour live so watch out for that amber and paul and me um i don't know what we're going to be talking about but that's the sort of the fun of paul's live stream is that it's all unplanned and a lot of it is a, is about responding to comments and things in the in the uh, chat so we'll see um other stuff other upcoming content uh, uh, i'm not sure exactly how and when these things are going to be uploaded because they're all sort of in the pipeline uh andy johnson will be back on the podcast soon and long-term listeners might and slash should um slash will remember andy uh but it's been a while since he was on the podcast 2019 was the last time may 2019 so that's what two and a half years is it really two and a half years oh my god time flies so anyway andy will be back on the podcast talking about well he's talking about the metaverse um, and learning English and teaching English in the metaverse. And you're thinking, what's the metaverse, Luke? Well, you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out. I'm not going to explain it now because that's unnecessary. It's all going to be explained in the episode. And also, we managed to finally talk about the Mandalorian. More M words. It's always M words with Andy Johnson. Marathons, uh, millennials, moving, uh, Moby, because people always think he, he looks like... People always mistake him for Moby. And you'll be able to see the video version of that. Uh, assuming that, you know, my computer doesn't crash or something and I'm not able to upload it and I lose all the files. If that doesn't happen, you will be able to to see the video version. Um, but this time, yes, the metaverse. And also we talk about the Mandalorian as well, which you might be thinking, oh, that's that's kind of that's uh, the Mandalorian. That was a, that was that the second series finished ages ago. Yeah, but uh, it's taken us this long to finally get it together. I've been meaning to talk about The Mandalorian for ages. But, you know, like, The the Mandalorian will be back in people's minds and people will be talking about it again soon because um, the kind of spin-off slash sequel series to The Mandalorian will be uh, streaming, I think, on Disney Plus in their Star Wars section. Um, the The new series is The Book of Boba Fett, or I say Boba Fett, some people say Boba Fett. The Book of Boba Fett is going to be coming soon, and then I guess people will be back in the world of The Mandalorian again. Um, But anyway, um, coming soon on the podcast, a chat, a rambling chat about The Mandalorian. 
And so, yes, those people who months ago were saying, Luke, when are you going to talk about The Mandalorian? Well, now. Well, not now, but soon that's going to come. Okay. Uh, Also, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm just desperate to talk about the new Beatles documentary, Get Back, the documentary, which is also on Disney Plus, a lot of Disney Plus um, free advertising from me here. Uh, Hey, Mickey Mouse, if you're listening, you know, you could, you know, send me some of that Disney, (laughs) Disney, if you've got any spare cash lying around. You know, throw some my direction, would you? That would be nice. You know, I just gave you a little bit of a shout out to Lepland. Uh, all right, all right, Mickey, and Mickey's like, okay, I'll see, I'll see what I can do. And that's how Mickey Mouse speaks, isn't it? Anyway, uh, the the new Beatles documentary. Um, I maybe tr- ramble about it for a minute or two now. Um, it's a it's a brand new. It's just brand new Beatles. I mean, I say new. It was filmed in 1969 during the recording and filming sessions that that ultimately became the Let It Be album and film. But while they were filming all of that stuff and recording it, they, they oh, how many hours? 150 hours of audio and something like 60 hours of video were recorded. So basically what happened is, so beginning of the year, 1969, the Beatles decided, right, we've got to we're going to record a new album and they said let's make a film at the same time while doing it it's kind of a crazy ambitious project they had um a short period of time it's just amazing really when you consider that like the work that the beatles did and you know the albums that they did they they sort of now are timeless like these huge monoliths in music like these timeless pieces of work and you you know the 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 amount that they've been uh, dissected and analysed and listened to in in so much detail, but they only did it in a, in like about three weeks from from scratch. They they I uh, won't I, I can't go into all the details, but basically all though all that video footage and audio uh, material, which culminated in their famous rooftop uh, live performance, all of that stuff was recorded and videotaped. And the plan was to turn it into, first of all, they wanted to make a TV show and various other things. And there were, it's it's crazy, really, that they just kind of made it all up as they went along over the course of about three or four weeks under quite a, you know, um, quite a lot of time pressure with a deadline looming. And they just kind of wrote the songs together and worked them all out and then sort of recorded them and then performed them live on the roof of the... Uh, Apple offices in Savile Row in London. And um, then things got a bit tricky um, in the world of the Beatles, sort of immediately after that, with lots of legal problems, because their manager, who used to be in charge of all of their business affairs, and he was like the, the, the kind of father figure and the leader, in a sense, in terms of like choosing their strategy, he died um, in 1967. And after that, the Beatles were sort of it was all a bit crazy they didn't you know didn't have the right kind of leadership and sort of paul mccartney kind of became the leader in a way although he wasn't comfortable with that position anyway so it all got complicated with legal uh, legal issues with john and george and ringo ultimately choosing to go with a certain business manager alan klein the um the very shady uh Alan Klein and Paul wanted to be represented by um his wife's father 
uh, what's his name? Eastman, Linda Eastman, and his what's his name? John Eastman, Linda Eastman's father's name. What's his name? I can't believe I've Lee Eastman, of course, Lee Eastman. So there was a split, a, a sort of a split relating to the chaos of their business affairs, and it it got a bit messy, and they didn't manage to sort of. Uh, ultimately produce the album that they had envisaged instead they gave the the um the kind of raw uh recordings audio recordings they gave that stuff to phil specter who was uh, you know an, uh, also a big name and he kind of mixed the album and produced an album but it wasn't quite done right in the not really in the Beatles sort of style and um it was all a bit unsatisfactory he put lots and lots of string arrangements over the top of some of the songs and his production was a bit well it was all a very Phil Phil Spector basically probably a bit too much reverb and and so on and the the filmmaker who was filming all of the the recording sessions and everything he had the unenviable task of turning all of those hours of footage into a feature-length film. You know, feature-length movies are usually about 100 minutes long. And he probably wanted to craft some sort of narrative. He ended up focusing on quite a lot of the negative things, and it ended up being the sort of... On the surface, it seemed to be the story of how the Beatles were breaking up. But that was only one very narrow view of the events that happened. And what's happened now is that Peter Jackson, the director of um, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, most famously, um, he was allowed access to all of the raw uh, video footage and audio footage and using a lot of his amazing digital like um, technology, the various types of software and things i don't know really understand how how he did it but he's sort of an expert in taking old footage and making it look new again in various complex ways they also did the same thing with the audio files and they really cleaned them up and they sound amazing and so it's been a very long project for peter jackson but he ultimately was able to turn like 60 hours of video and is it 60 something like that and 150 hours of audio he's he's crunched it down to a a three-part series um which in total is almost eight hours long and you might think eight hours that's too much but it's absolutely not he's such a great director and he's done such a great job of presenting uh you know that footage and making a sort of narrative out of it putting it all in context and it's just incredible. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Beatles fan, and so of course I'm going to say it's incredible. But I think objectively it is amazing, and I think that anyone who is interested in just watching human interactions and watching the creative process and how it happens, and it's also an amazing little time capsule of a moment in history. You get to see more than just the Beatles interacting in the studio and stuff, you see a, there's a whole cast of other characters, people who are also part of the story and other people who visited the studios. And you get shots of of London, the streets of London, when they're doing their performance at the end. Uh, you see uh, pedestrians in the street who are uh, interviewed. And it's an incredible time capsule of London in 1969. But it's also timeless. It seems to be timeless. The Beatles were really ahead of their time 
um, in many ways, and they seem fresh. It doesn't seem that dated, especially the the bits with the four Beatles, who just had this weird otherworldly ability to to be timeless. It's hard to explain, but they all seem like modern people. They're there in even their clothes. Their clothes still look really cool today. They don't look out of date. It's just amazing. The, the whole thing is stunning, and I'm desperate to talk about it at great length. The documentary, as I said, is nearly eight hours long, and I feel like I could talk about it for eight hours. Um, I don't know if that would be wise, because, you know, a lot of my audience will, you know, I, I'm, I'm joking, really, I couldn't do eight hours, but I, I feel like I could do a couple of hours of talking, maybe on my own, maybe with a guest or two. Um, but, you know, I'm a bit cautious for th- of that, because... Obviously, some people listening will be like, "Uh, this is too much, and it it might turn people off a little bit. So I've got to kind of use my judgment. At this point, some people, I know, some people will be going, yes, do it, please, do it, do it, definitely. And other people will be going, "Uh, you know, I I never really got the Beatles. No, it's not really for me. If that is your uh, feeling, that's obviously fair enough. You know, there's no accounting for taste. But it's a pity, because I I do think that, objectively, there's a lot of quality there, and a lot of heartwarming soul nourishing stuff to be gained um but i'm not here to convince you that the beatles music is you know is is the best you know that's that's a question of taste but i do think that the documentary is definitely interesting and fascinating for more reasons than just we like the music there's a lot more going on the relationship between those four people is extraordinary and fascinating to observe there's drama you know there are there it was an emotional experience for me watching it um i didn't expect that i thought you know i thought okay i'll i'll be I'm glad that there's eight hours or so of new Beatles stuff that we can explore and observe, but I didn't quite expect it to be such an emotional experience to watch. And that again, that's not just because I am a fan. I think it's just when you understand the context of the story and the events as they unfold, it's hard not to feel a genuine sense of emotion as the characters on screen are feeling those emotions too. It's an incredible piece of work. It really, really is. And I say that, uh, I, I'm confident about saying that to people who who might not even be fans of the Beatles. As I said, if you're a fan of humans and human beings, if you find human beings interesting, um, then I think that you would find this documentary interesting too. I felt like no minute of this documentary was wasted there's no fluff in there it's all it's all interesting and vital to the whole to itself in uh in various ways so i you know i'd love to talk about that more i don't know how i don't know when but um more beatles stuff is probably coming um and you know i I, again i feel now obliged to kind of mention queen because i do get you know i do get requests from my audience to talk about certain things and I've had plenty of requests from people to, to ask asking me to talk about the Beatles and I've always gone kind of oh my god how can I possibly how can I do the subject justice um but also the the other band that people always want me to talk about is Queen Freddie Mercury Brian May uh, Roger not Roger Waters oh god <laughs> hold on a minute Queen drummer Roger Taylor Roger Taylor and the drummer uh, uh, the bassist what's his name Oh, God. Another one bites the dust. Doon, 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 
brilliant bass line john deacon of course so queen yes i mean i did an episode about queen some time ago with my friend alex love but i felt like maybe he wasn't i hadn't prepared him enough for the interview um you know i i should have maybe been more specific in my instructions to alex which was like we need to go into as much depth as possible and we need to explain exactly the the appeal of this band um and also i having not um, explored their music as much as I should have. Uh, I wasn't able to bring as much insight to that episode as I uh, would have wanted. Um, so more stuff about Queen is definitely on the cards. Um, but uh, at the moment, it's all just Beatles, Beatles, Beatles in my head. Talking about that, talking of Beatles, and this is the last mention of, of the Beatles I'm going to do here in this in this bit. Oh, there's also Pink Floyd as well. I've got to talk about Pink Floyd. I bought some books about Pink Floyd um, during the lockdown and read read up on them. I love Pink Floyd too. I'd love to do an episode about them. Oh, and Led Zeppelin and The Who and, you know, oh, so many bands. I did, I did a couple of episodes about David Bowie back in 2016, music fans. Anyway, about the Beatles. So I'm doing a talk at the British Council in Paris. Uh, at the British Council in Paris, we do these, because I work there, we do, not because I work there, I'm saying I can tell you this. I say we, that's it. I say we because I work there. So at the British Council, we uh, have regular talks in English. That's where someone, a guest, or maybe one of the teachers, um, talks to uh, an audience about a topic, maybe 45 minutes worth is it like a TED talk? Kind of. Um, and um, I'm doing a talk on Thursday, the 27th of January, 2022, at 7pm. And uh, the title of my talk is Why We Love the Beatles. And um, I agreed to do it. So the the, the guy responsible for organising these talks was asking round, asking teachers, asking people like Kate Billington, and me, um, you know, would you like to do a talk? You know, just pick a topic that you'd love to talk about and let me know if you'd like to do a talk. And I, and immediately I, I said, oh, you know, I'd love to do a talk about the Beatles. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? And, and he said, yes, definitely. That would be a really popular topic. So I thought, okay, definitely I'll do it. And then I thought, mm, what shall I do? What, what, what could the, 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 the focus be? And I thought, well, why we love the Beatles, trying to explain the everlasting appeal of this group and so I agreed to do it and now I'm thinking oh god I've got to actually do it now I don't quite know how I'm going to approach it I might just (laughs) I might just ramble my way through it Uh, but I'm going to try and explain the appeal of the Beatles the the summary of it is this this is on the British Council's website and by the way if you're interested in coming obviously it's in Paris so you'd need to be in Paris of course although I will I hope be recording this recording the audio for it as well for the podcast so you know hopefully i'll be able to publish the audio on the podcast but if you if you're interested in coming you need to reserve a seat uh, for it and you can do that by signing up on the website it's free i say the website i mean the british council's website uh, britishcouncil.fr okay go to britishcouncil.fr and then click on what's on and then scroll down and you'll see a green sign that says talks in English and you'll see my talk uh, there and you can just click to sign up completely free we just need to know how many people are coming so the summary 
uh, on the BC website uh, is like this. The Beatles were a global phenomenon when they first appeared in the 1960s, and their appeal continues to this day. The world still loves the Beatles, but why is this? And this is this this is what the the, the website says. In this talk, join one of our excellent teachers. Ooh, thanks very much. Join one of our excellent teachers, stand-up comedian and Beatles fan, Luke Thompson, that's me, to take a deeper look at the social, cultural and psychological factors that make the Beatles story so compelling, even after all these years. So I've got to do that then. Um, I'll be thinking about that. Um, And... um, well, as I said, the audio of that should go up on the podcast. So, yeah, more Beatles stuff, but that's all right. It's not going to be only Beatles on the podcast. There'll be plenty of other things, as I've said. Uh, but again, to reserve your seat, uh, click the link that you'll find on the page for this episode on my website, or just go to britishcouncil.fr and then click What's On and you'll find it. So if you're in Paris, why not come along to that? I'm going to record a podcast while doing it, I hope as I've already said. Uh, Yes, I've still got a lot on my plate. Um, I will upload podcasts as regularly as possible, but we will see if the podcast gets disrupted by the move, which is still yet to happen. Um, I'm not going to talk about it all now, but needless to say, it's, you know, it's making progress, but slowly. It's complicated. It's stressful. Moving house is stressful anyway, but when you are, when you've sort of decided to completely redesign the property you're going to move into and have a lot of have a lot of work done literally everything from scratch it's it's stressful because you've got to make potentially life-changing decisions about things like for example where are we going to put the light fittings exactly where is where are the plugs going to go and it like one bad mis one bad mistake one bad decision could kind of ruin the whole flat it feels like for example where where do you put a plug next to the kitchen area where do the plugs go it's all been redesigned from from scratch and so some quite stressful decision making um in less than perfect conditions is being made about the arrangement of the entire thing and using the space i mean it's a bit like if you live in tokyo or another very crowded city um often there's not a lot of space in the in the apartments and so you've got to be very efficient with the space and that's the case in Paris as well uh, so we are trying to think um carefully about how we use the space and arranging it in such a way and you've got to really picture what it will be like to live in the place and we don't really know what the place will be like until we've lived in it for a while and we'll see oh dear we kind of met that we got that bit wrong didn't we because this is really inconvenient or something but we will see so uh, it's a slightly stressful time but it's an exciting time we can't wait to move in and also the the pod room that i'm going to get which won't be part of the apartment it's in a separate location only a few minutes walk from from where the new flat will be but i'm going to have my own pod room and so I'm also working on how to set that up. At the moment, it's just a completely bare space. So I need to install a desk, shelves, get the electricity fitted, work out how I'm going to heat the place with a heater and set the whole thing up, get the internet connected, get the electricity connected and all that sort of thing. Make sure I've got a kettle and a place where I can make tea. It's a very small room. Uh, but it's it's going to be good, I think. And one of the things I'm most happy about, 
actually, and this might be odd, but if you if you ever record video, then you'll understand. One of the one of the best things about it is the window. So there's a nice window which faces north, and that will get give me lots of good natural light, which is the best kind of light when you're trying to do filming. So if I can, you know, set the desk up in the right place in front of the window and get my camera set up, uh, hopefully the camera, my video camera, will not be attached to my laptop and the desk won't be as wobbly as the desk I use now. So it'll look better, I hope, and the light will be better. And so I, I'm very look, very much looking forward to setting myself up in the new pod room and hopefully, you know, that will just make it easier and a nicer experience for me to to produce episodes which ultimately will be better for the podcast and then better for you as well so there you go uh christmas is coming if you if you're wondering about christmas present ideas and you've got friends and family who listen to this podcast you could consider getting some luke's english podcast stuff for them uh t-shirts mugs um you know other items of clothing um so you can get Luke's English Podcast merchandise uh, from the merch store. Just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash merch. That's M-E-R-C-H, merch, meaning merchandise. Teacherluke.co.uk slash merch. And you'll find ver- various designs uh, made by my brother and also all the designs um, from the winners of the LEP design competition. And there are discounts at the moment because it's coming up to Christmas. There are some nice big discounts available on, on all that stuff. So check them out. Okay. Um, you know, I should say premium stuff is coming. I've got an episode in the pipeline um, in which I'm going to go through some language from the first part of my chat with Penny Dale. And that's sort of like nice language for describing all that culture and art and society and and so on. Uh, So that is coming too. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast all the way until the end. Uh, You are a super duper extra super special uh, listener for having the what the having the, the focus and the commitment uh, to stay tuned all the way to the end and not be distracted by all the many other things which are trying to grab your attention, especially on your phone. If you've got your phone in front of you, it's just so tempting to just, oh, well, I'm going to look at this instead. But no, you're still here. You're still listening. So nice one. I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. Okay. Um, All right, then. But for now, it's just time for me to say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.